The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. You're listening to the MJ Cast by MJ fans or MJ fans. The idea is to uh, innovate, or else why, why am I doing it? When I create my music, I feel like an instrument of nature. You let it create itself, really. I know I do. And I love to entertain. That's that's one of my favorite things. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news and discussion on the King of Pop. Hello and welcome to the MJ Cast, episode 81, our fourth annual Vindication Day special episode where each year we interview somebody connected to Michael Jackson's 2005 trial. I'm Charles Thompson, the MJ Cast's legal correspondent, and I'm here with hosts Jamin Ball and Q. We're joined today by journalist Aphrodite Jones. In 1992, Aphrodite published her first true crime book, The FBI Killer. The book told the story of how Mark Putnam became the first active FBI agent ever to be convicted of homicide. Her investigation captured the imaginations of American readers, and the book became a surprise hit, being turned into a TV movie two years later, starring Patricia Arquette. Fifteen years later, Aphrodite had published another six books, chronicling some of the country's most sensational criminal trials, and all of them had become New York Times bestsellers. One, all he wanted, about the murder of transgender teenager Brandon Tina had even been turned into an Oscar-winning movie, Boys Don't Cry. Yet, in 2007, when Aphrodite tried to secure a publisher for her eighth book about Michael Jackson's 2005 child molestation trial, She found herself hitting one brick wall after another. At first, she couldn't understand how an author with her sales record could suddenly come up against such determined opposition. But she soon came to believe it was because she'd committed what many in the U.S. media considered a cardinal sin. She had failed to take the prosecution's side. During the trial, Aphrodite now concedes she had taken a pro-prosecution stance. But her book, Michael Jackson Conspiracy, served as a mea culpa, recounting the testimony in the case and condemning the way in which the media, including herself, had reported it to the public. When the verdicts came in, she said she had been forced to do a lot of soul-searching and had come to the conclusion that actually, the jurors had got it right. The prosecution hadn't proved its case. She and her colleagues had got it wrong. In the end, Aphrodite had to self-publish the book through iUniverse, It became a cult hit, having since been reprinted and re-released in an updated format. But more than 10 years on, it remains the last book Aphrodite ever published. Aphrodite has since embarked on a successful new career as a documentary host. Her TV show True Crime with Aphrodite Jones notched up six seasons on the Investigation Discovery Channel, and she now hosts the podcast Sex, Love and Murder. Today, Aphrodite has agreed to join Jamin, Q and I to discuss her career and her work on Michael Jackson. Aphrodite, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate it. So whereabouts are you calling in from today, Aphrodite? I am in New York, and it is a rainy, rainy day. Do you live permanently in New York, or do you move about? I actually kind of move about. I'm between here and Florida, so... I get my fix of sun, no matter what goes on in New York. It's It's been very uh, dreary weather here this year. 
just so the the listeners know who's who, uh, Jamin, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm the guy with the cold. <laughs> um, but <laughs> no, uh, yeah. What do I say? I uh, I host the MJ Cast. I uh, love what I do. Um, we get the opportunity to talk to a lot of people who knew and worked with Michael Jackson, which is really exciting. Yeah, every year we, we do a Vindication Day special um, on June 13th. We love delving back into the, the history uh, of Michael Jackson's criminal trial uh, and what he fought against and, and, uh, and the history of it. And I look forward to doing the same today. And Q, do you want to uh, say hello to the listeners? Hi, everyone. I'm Q. Thank you for joining us again. Or if this is your first time, thank you for joining us for the first time listening to the MJ Cast podcast. And Aphrodite just wanted to extend our gratitude for your time today. And we look forward to learning a bit more about yourself and discussing the trial and your book, uh, Michael Jackson Conspiracy. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And you're in uh, good company because our previous Vindication Day guests have been uh, Tom Mesereau and uh, his investigator, Scott Ross. I think you know both of them fairly well. Uh, I surely do. So uh, what we like to do with our guests is we don't like to, to dive straight into the, the trial. So we just wondered if we could start off by asking you a little bit about your background and your childhood. Could you tell us uh, where you grew up and, and what kind of childhood you had? Oh, wow. Uh, sure. I grew up in New York, and actually I had a stunted childhood because my mother died when I was 17, and she had always been very sickly. Um, and my father died not long thereafter, when I was 21, my childhood was filled with having to take care of my family, my mother included. And then once my parents died, I had to continue on taking care of my one younger sibling, a sister. That's all I've got. And so uh, I wouldn't say I had the happiest childhood, not at all. But I certainly grew up very fast. And it made me perhaps the person I am today in terms of understanding people who are victims of tragic circumstances like murder because, you know, clearly, even though my parents died of, of health issues, when you lose somebody, especially if they both had heart attacks, so it's almost like it's overnight, the, the shock and, and, and the fact that the loss, it just never goes away. So it's many, many years later, but... There are many times where I just feel like, you know, it's just I wish I had my mother or father here. And I know that everyone I deal with in the crime world, the victims, have that feeling. And I, and I empathize with it rather than sympathize with it. And perhaps that was why I had that calling. Were you always somebody, even in your youth, who loved writing and journalism and, and um, exploring those talents? Or did that come a little later? No, I actually um, always loved writing, um, reading was one of my favorite things to do. I was a library nut. The first time I ever did any writing that I understood to be as a writer was that I had a teacher in second grade who was very crazy. And she gave us uh, very bizarre assignments to write about. And my assignments were to write about the sex life of an amoeba. And the other one was watching grass grow. And I can never forget, I could see my mother on the phone in the kitchen, and I was outside in the front playing, 
And she was talking to her best friend and saying, you know, my nickname is Affy, although I really don't like people to call me that because they screw it up and call me Alfie. But anyway, <laughs> my mother said, you know, Affy's outside. Rather, she said, uh, I can't believe Affy was given this assignment to write about watching grass grow. What's she going to do? She can't write about that or the sex life of an amoeba. And I, all I could think was as a child outside thinking, well, what's the problem? I have no problem writing about those things. <laughs> <laughs> I probably have more of a problem now, but apparently I had no problem at, in second grade and did the essays. So looking back, I realized that, you know, and I always wrote with diaries and things like that. So it's a, it's a sort of a natural thing for me, I suppose, in a way. Back when you were a young kid, do you, did you have any memories of Michael Jackson? Like, did you have music of Michael playing in your house? Were you, did you ever go through a phase as a fan? Like, what are your uh, early recollections of Michael Jackson or the Jackson family? You know, Michael is a contemporary of mine, age-wise. So I grew up with him. And having said that, everything he ever did was on my radar. I don't think it was... I think it was on everybody's radar around the world. I don't know how much around the world at the time, but I know in America for sure and in New York, for goodness sake. I mean, that was it. I mean, listening to the Jackson 5, watching, they, they, he was the Beatles, you know, to me. I was too young for the Beatles, but I wasn't too young for, my, for the Jackson 5 or Michael Jackson and ABC and all of that. You know, I loved it. And... Always saw him as a, a prodigy, and then as he grew uh, up and struck out on his own, I understood that as well because to me he was this is and was always the star. And um, you know, as his star power increased when he did Thriller, you know, for me I, I was I was extremely thrilled clearly, but I was also at that time a journalist writing about the evolution of television, cable television. So at the time, I was chronicling what had just become VH1 which, and MTV, which had never existed before. And so music videos were uh, on, on very new at that time back then. And the fact that Jackson did a movie as his video just to me spoke to his genius back then. You know, to me spoke to the, how, how not just special this person was, but what a true genius uh, artistic genius he was on every level. And I mean the dancing, the singing, the, 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 the people he chose to be on his teams, the, the ideas he had, it was all ahead of its time. And, and it was, I, I treasured Michael Jackson. I lived in Paris for a minute back in the seventies. Uh, and I can so clearly remember seeing myself on that dance floor in Elise Matignon dancing with, with girls from all over, models from Germany, from London, from New York, from Paris. And we all danced to Michael Jackson all night until, you know, the wee hours of the morning. And that was one of the best times of my life. So you, you just mentioned that you were initially working in journalism, chronicling the history and evolution of television. But your career today is quite different. So how did you transition from that role into the true crime author and presenter that we now know you as. Right. So it was cable television, not television. I'm not that old, but <laughs> um, yeah, cable television evolved in the, in the early 80s. And I happened to be um, 19 years old when I started writing professionally. At, and that was at that time. But um, so I left 
the writing world to pursue a PhD in literature, and I went and did a, the PhD program at NYU in Manhattan, they wouldn't accept my dissertation after five years of writing about Ernest Hemingway. So finally, I thought, I'm, writing, I'm going to start writing books because a woman who had been killed in Kentucky, where I was already now a professor with uh, waiting for my, my PhD letters to come through, and I was in Appalachia, which is a very strange and forgotten place in America, very poor. So I was there working from there, commuting to New York with the dissertation situation. And while I was there, I also was doing radio and I was a, a news director, a broadcaster there on local stations in, in Appalachia, in Kentucky, Eastern Kentucky. And the FBI agent who killed this informant, nobody in the United States knew about it. And I thought, I know I'm on the end of the world over here, and it was, and it still is the end of the world. There's, you can't get a plane uh, into it. You have to drive for two and a half hours in any direction to get from a plane, a hopper plane. But, um, you know, I couldn't understand. I mean, it was, not, it was 1989. I mean, where was the media? This was not, you know, I, I couldn't get it, especially since I had been involved in the media and chronicling CNN and everything else, like 24-hour news, like, what happened? How did this happen that nobody knew about this? And uh, I had written already a book about my experiences in the cable television world uh, that chronicled uh, an involvement with somebody who was one of the uh, people behind the whole thing. And uh, that book got the attention of certain agents and uh, it remains unpublished. However, I was then once I had that attention and now I was angry about this poor woman, hillbilly woman they called, who nobody cared about, including CNN, including everybody, that um, I said, look, this book has to be written. I mean, this, this and, and, and my agent said to me, well, you know, it's like in cold blood. And I thought, I said, well, I've never read it in cold blood. I don't, I don't know anything about it. And he said, well, go read it. And I did. And within a week, I had sold the proposal and I went out and set out and wrote a book that frankly, had I had to do it now, I wouldn't have done it because the FBI stonewalled me in every way, shape, and form possible. I had no public records to go by. I had no transcripts to go by. I had nothing that I learned to use later on. But somehow I managed to write that book. And yes, it did manage to become a TV movie with Patricia Arquette. And it was a very successful movie. It ran for years and years. So that's how I fell into it. It wasn't by choice. It was by, I suppose, accident. Yeah, wow. And so aside from, from that book, Prior to the Michael Jackson trial, what would you say a few of your other career highlights? Well, the book I wrote next called Cruel Sacrifice is the one that people uh, respond to the most. And the reason is it's, it's one of the most horrific crimes ever committed by teenagers anywhere in this world. It's four teenage girls who wind up torturing and killing a 12-year-old girl in a lesbian love ring, which is completely absurd because the 12-year-old, you don't know if she, she doesn't know if she was really a lesbian or not. Nonetheless, it's really not their story. It's really the backstory of their families and how that came to be. And it's so, so bizarre and twisted that when people read it, they just can't put it down. And um, I still get news and letters and, and response about Cruel Sacrifice. But it is so difficult in terms of a story to be told that it can't be made into a movie ever. Although I am doing a, actually a TV special with idea about it in a, in a few weeks. Um, it's going to be airing as one of the most horrific things that ever happened in the 1990s. 
So, I mean, people still talking about it. So that, I would say, cruel sacrifice for sure. And then, of course, uh, All She Wanted, which I reissued recently as All He Wanted, once I realized that the transgender community was up in arms that the book was called She Wanted when she was a he, he was a he. However, at the time that I wrote the book, the word transgender gentleman didn't exist in the American vocabulary. It might have existed in somewhere else in the, in the world, but in 1992 and three, when that book and when that story happened, there was no such word as transgender. There was no LGBT because there was no T. And so, in fact, I remember doing interviews with uh, some of the people uh, that were uh, advocates, and they had one had a T-shirt on transgender menace, and I said, "What does that mean? What is transgender menace?" And that that was the first I'd ever seen the word, or anyone had seen the word. And in fact, in the book, I don't use that word. I use the word transgendered because it was more like a verb to me. Uh, and I didn't change it because the, that book was written at the time when, when uh, you know, it's pertinent. But I did change, you know, it's, it was relevant to the time, I, I should say. But I did change the title to All He Wanted because I realized finally that Brandon Tina was a he, always, born in a body of a she. What I had studied back then was the transsexual, the transsexuality of Brandon Tina or Tina Brandon, and that's technically the term for transgender people is transsexual. And so I had gone to a medical school and studied up on that. And I understood the complexity of Tina Brandon's situation. I also had to deal with in that book, which is another whole issue, is I had to deal with the fact that Tina went back to being Tina when she was with her mother and sister in Nebraska in, in uh, Lincoln and then would become Brandon when he was with girlfriends or in other towns such as Humboldt and Fall City, where he was killed, you know, became Brandon. So, and then we'll go back to Lincoln, Nebraska and be Tina again. It was a very difficult thing to constantly transition from the pronouns to the one person to the other. And I had a lot of negative feedback from the transgender community at the time because I point, was trying to point out, look, three people were murdered here. And this isn't only about one murder. It was a triple homicide that I was chronicling. Yes, of course, that was the main thing was the fact that it was a hate crime but two of Brandon's friends were killed with him and nobody even bothered to talk about it and that upset me but you know of course I became the devil to them because how dare I say anything about it, didn't that all that mattered was Brandon and Tina or the fact that this was a person whose name was Tina Brandon and still had a family that didn't accept her as anything but Tina Brandon and they actually wanted to go to her gravesite and to her, her tombstone and change the name to Brandantina that the mother had buried her child. And there was no such name as Brandantina, actually. That was just a made-up name, you know, reversing her real name when she was a he. And uh, so it's very, it was very complicated, frankly. And the, the transgender community to this day doesn't acknowledge my book, doesn't acknowledge me. Um, if you look up anything about Brandon Tina or Boys Don't Cry, my book's not mentioned. I'm not mentioned. I find it very um, odd that they would be this hatred of me for having written a book that was the first book ever to chronicle a transgender hate crime. And, and I did such an amazing job with it. And people who've read it have, have certainly told me. I mean, I have a lot of people who've read it long before this movement who wrote to me and said, thank you, thank you, thank you, and, and came crying to me telling me, you know, you saved my life. I read this and I know there's someone else out there like me and 
things like that for many, many years. In fact, just recently at CrimeCon, somebody flew from around the world to tell me that, which I found stunning. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was, it was incredible. She was shaking and, and, you know, I had her come up to the podium. It was, it was really, it was, it made the whole crime con worthwhile for me. But, um, you know, I, I, I do think it's weird that, that, uh, that I'm, I'm still this outcast with their community, that community. But I, I made my own decision that I needed to change the title to all he wanted because Brandon was always a he. And once Caitlyn Jenner came out, that's when I understood that there is no such thing as the person being the other gender. If you have that condition, you really are the gender that you that you believe you are. Uh, it's a strange thing to say because it, our society is still grappling with it and doesn't understand it. Because people say, well, if you if you believe you're a man today, you're a man today, and then tomorrow you believe you're a woman, and then you're what? No, it's not like that. It really isn't. It's something very serious. It's a serious state and condition. And, and, and a torturous one to, to the people that I've talked to. And, um, I, you know, so I, I just decided the thing to do for me, for, for my own peace of mind, was to, to change the title to all he wanted and to write an ep- a prologue in there to explain that whole scenario and how much I was hated by the transgender community, et cetera. And I, and I did get into it a little bit just because I thought that was the right thing to do. So that, that would be an important book to me, a very important book to me. Yeah, I, I look forward to diving into it now. That's awesome. I, I, remember, I remember seeing the film back when that was uh, in the cinemas. I was a, a young queer teen myself at the time, and it was very powerful. So, yeah, thank you so much for telling that story indeed. Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. It was, it was not easy to do, I must say. It was, a, it was a lot of uh, static around it. I have a question about um, your coverage of, uh, or I'm not sure if you did cover it, but there was a particular crime in, in the mid-90s that, that also was linked to Michael Jackson. And, and we'll get to the Michael Jackson trial in a little bit, but I'm sure you've heard of um, Tito Jackson's wife at the time being murdered by um, Don Bahana. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the mother of, of uh, 3T. Um, did, was that a case you covered at the time? Not at all. Okay. Not at all. No, no. You know, I was involved at that time. Actually, that was the time of the Tina Brandon, Brandon Tina. You see that the problem I have there is in the courts. That was, those were two murderers who were tried for the murders of three people. One of whose name was Tina Brandon, you know, so I had to deal with that as a crime writer. I mean, I couldn't change what was going on in the court records, you know? So I was in, in the murder case of, of the, the triple homicide of, of involving Brandon Tina at that time. And the OJ Simpson case was going on also at that time because the jury in, in my case in Nebraska was watching the news uh, in the lobby of the hotel that I was staying at with them and seeing the OJ Simpson trial on the news there, which, uh, you know, so it was a very strange time period. And I think that the murder of Tito's wife was, was very much overlooked by many in the world because massively, of massively yeah massively and there was an, sort of like an expose uh documentary type thing that came out last year that the um that michael's nephews were and tito were involved in they did some interviews for it i don't think they were fully happy with the outcome of it but they had some trial footage in there um from when it happened and just seeing the jacksons in the courtroom it sort of reminded me really of or or drove home with me how many high profile court 
cases the Jackson family have had to deal with. Yeah, well, of course, you know, I mean, the the worst of all uh, was was the Conrad Murray uh, trial, and I was there for that, and uh, that was really to see Catherine there, and obviously the rest of the family, but Catherine in particular, to look at her face and to just realize that this man, this 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 ridiculous doctor who happened to be taller than a beanstalk. I don't know. He was so tall and thin and uh, how he had the, the, the wherewithal to administer that kind of amount of medication and, and walk away from Michael Jackson and be on the telephone is just, uh, it's sickening. It, it was, it was very difficult, frankly, to be at that trial knowing frankly that he and watching his defense actually got involved with interviewing the doctor who defended him Paul White who was the considered the 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 uh, father of propofol and he had taken up the defense and it was a very sad situation because he had done it because uh, of the money they were paying him he actually lost a lot of credibility in his medical community and, and was turned upon by everyone in the medical community afterward, many people in the, in the medical community. But I could not believe that basically what, what they were trying to argue is that propofol, you know, is a, has a half-life of a certain amount of time and this and that and the other. And, and hence, you know, it wasn't Conrad Murray's fault. And meanwhile, yeah, it was. And the jury got that right, too. But, you know, at the end of the day, we lost Michael, so. You mentioned, Aphrodite, earlier that you had grown up a Michael Jackson fan and you remember dancing to his music in clubs and stuff. But by the time you arrived at in Santa Maria for his trial, what was going through your head then and, and to what extent were or were not you still a fan? Oh, listen, I was always a Michael Jackson fan. I tried to explain that to the Jackson fans there at the gates of Neverland and they wouldn't believe me because since I was reporting for Fox News and Bill O'Reilly and O'Reilly was very anti-Jackson, they all they knew was I was one of the reporters and all of the reporters pretty much were anti-Jackson. Being anti-Jackson, meaning that I thought that he was guilty, had nothing to do with my love for his music and his talent and his genius. So that for me, they were completely separate, you know. It's kind of like the Bill Cosby situation right now. You know, his abilities as an actor and a comic and, and all of that are tremendous, but he's also a convicted rapist now. And to me, I have to say in bringing that up that it is bizarre that Tom Mesero represented Bill Cosby. I'm, I'm upset about it. I went to the Cosby trial, by the way, guys. I was just there a few weeks ago. And I did see Tom. He gave me a wave, and Scott Ross, by the way, who hates me, so he didn't even give me a look. That's another story. He felt I made him look bad on media years ago, which I, I didn't. You know, I was very disappointed that Tom took that case because, you know, Stacey Brown was there. Do you all know Stacey Brown? Oh, yeah, everyone knows Stacey Brown. Okay, just checking. So I hadn't seen Stacey since the trial of uh, Michael. And so that was, you know, almost, well, it was 10 years ago. No. When was it? It was more than 10 years ago. I can't even keep track anymore. What year are we on? 13 years ago, two, I think. 13, right. It was 2005. Yeah. So yeah, it was 13. 
So I'm thinking of his death. His death is going to be 10 years ago next yeah. year, right? right. I'm just all discombobulated. Sorry, guys. So anyway, uh, I hadn't seen him in 13 years. And I didn't recognize him. And he came up. And, and then I realized he, he happens to watch my show and body B, body blah. And he was telling me some interesting things about Michael that, uh, you know, uh, I hadn't known. But the one thing we had in common there, sitting in that courthouse in Pennsylvania a couple of weeks ago, was the fact that we both felt that it was deja vu with Tom Mesereau going after victims and using the theory that these victims, all they wanted was money. And in the case of Michael Jackson, that is what I believe. And that is what I was able to show in the book that I wrote. But in mm. the case of Bill Cosby, gentlemen, maybe these women wanted some money if he gets convicted, but the actual accuser had already been paid um, had already gotten a settlement from him and was only there because the the prosecutors of Pennsylvania flew to Toronto, she's Canadian, and asked her to come in and testify because she was the only victim that fell within the statute of limitations. So she had no desire or interest to be there. In fact, she's gay and, and had a settlement back in 2006. So there was no interest on her part whatsoever to have anything financial and for Mesero to go after her that way. It was disheartening to me because it in a way puts a cinch on the Jackson verdict in the eyes of people who don't believe it was right still. And it, I, it, it was very hard for me to go to that trial, frankly, and see Tom there doing that. In a way, I was hoping that, you know, he was going to be right and Cosby wasn't a rapist. However, there's 62 women who have come out with charges and the five I watched testify in addition to the accuser certainly had a real experience with Cosby that couldn't be shaken by anyone, even Tom Mesereau. So I know I got off on a tangent, but it is on my mind these days. So it was my attitude toward Michael when I got to Santa Maria was he's, he's guilty. He's done this before. He made that huge settlement with Jordy Chandler. This is horrible. He is a pedophile. He's a horrible human being and he should be put in jail. That was my that was my belief. Totally. It really was. Well, you know, I I had a media mindset. And you know, when you're fed by the media, there was no social media really to speak of back then or at all. I don't know if there was anything at all back then. It seems like five hundred years ago with no social media. But nonetheless, there wasn't any other outlet to hear your news from or any of the voices you really heard anything from. And so what we heard in the media, in essence, was a constant drumbeat, especially in New York and in L.A. And at that time, I was living in L.A. and New York by coastally. All we ever heard were news stories about another accusation or another sighting or another this or another that. And the Bashir documentary came out and on and on. And that's all we ever heard. And so uh, as somebody who is a news junkie, I would see that scene of Michael over and over again of, of you know, hanging, dangling the baby blanket out the window and this and that and thinking to myself, he's crazy and that he's a musical genius who's a nut and he's got problems. And those problems in my mind included having fixations and fascinations with little boys that went too far. Did I know that he, did I think he was raping these boys? No, because I never heard that allegation from any boy. But did I have it in my head that 
this is all I ever heard about Michael Jackson. And it was a constant joke from Jay Leno and everybody else on the, on the news and in the comedy shows and the nighttime shows. That's all I ever heard. And I never thought anything beyond it. Yeah. And I, I would say if we're being honest with ourselves too, like you, you definitely weren't alone in having those kind of doubts. Like even in the fan community, we understood the, the 93 allegations, you know, once we'd read, you know, some great articles exposing the truth behind that. But like once the, the, the arrest happened, you know, I think it was in 2003, wasn't it? The actual arrest. Like once, yeah, yeah once that took place, I had questions in my mind, to be honest. I was a huge fan at the time. I loved his music. That was like the peak of when I was a fan, probably. But when those allegations, the second round broke, I was like, okay, wow. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, well, that's and the thing. I mean... When, once the evidence unfolded in the courtroom, obviously, like, you know, the truth was coming out. But at that moment, that was a dark time for, for Michael fans. Yeah. Well, and, and I think it was a dark time for Michael. Because, you know, you see that mugshot and he looks so warped in it. It was a horrible mugshot. And that's an image I can never really get out of my mind, you know. He just was in a funny place also in his life at that time. It was horrible what happened to him. I mean, Martin Bashir, I I go back to that. I don't want to jump ahead of you guys. I'll let you go ahead and do things how you want. But I I do want to get into something about Bashir when when you're ready. No worries. Well, I'll just ask, because we are heading towards um, talking about the Martin Bashir documentary, but I'll just ask, um, you were only one of a handful, really, of reporters that was given permanent seats in the courtroom throughout this trial. How did you secure that agreement? Well, to tell you the truth, I was not given a permanent seat. I was... Actually, though, even though I was covering it for Fox News, it's one of the major outlets. I was made to stand outside for a public seat for pretty much the first two months of the trial. So I had to get up at five o'clock in the morning every day, I would set my alarm uh, and make the coffee thing in advance at 4.30. And I would get up and I would go stand outside at 6 a.m. and have to stand there for two hours so that I could be sure that I had a public seat. The securing of a seat was kind of difficult. And finally, the pool coordinator, who knew I was with Fox News, who knew me from the Scott Peterson trial, who somehow or another realized that I shouldn't be standing there, decided that I I could have a seat with the rest of the media. It was very strange, but it took me months of standing outside in the cold. (laughs) No one knows that. It's funny you asked it. Never told anyone that. Well, that's why we're here to ask these questions. (laughs) Okay. So when you got to Santa Maria, were you there for all the pre-trial stuff or did you arrive just in time for the, the proper trial? I only arrived for the proper trial. I went to one hearing prior and it was at that time that I requested the seat. And that was at that time that I was told it's a maybe and you're going to have to sit in the public. And I decided to go anyway for the trial The jury selection, clearly nobody cared about. So I was in court for all of that, which was a month of jury selection. And then when the trial started, as I said, I had to stand outside for the first two months of it. But I only went, yes, for the proper trial. And when you arrived, how would you describe the attitude of the press generally who were there covering the case? Oh, there was no question 
that the press absolutely believed he was guilty, believed he should be and would be found guilty. The chatter, let me put it this way, the chatter amongst us was that he better flee and he should get on his jet and just leave in the middle of it because he's going to wind up being found guilty. There were others who talked a lot about, you know, he's wearing a wig, he's wearing uh, makeup, he's wearing this, he's wearing that. There was a lot of cattiness, I would say. Um, there was one woman who um, was an African-American woman, and she was a producer, I want to say for NBC, I'm not sure, it was a major network. And I had a conversation with her one day, and I said, you know, what do you think? Because, you know, she, there weren't a lot of African-American reporters there, which was odd, but that's it's just the way it was. I said, what do you think about Jordy Chandler? Because I, I had already made up my mind in that time still about this trial. She said, well, I think there might have been something there with Jordy Chandler. And I said, yeah, well, what, what about now? And she said, I don't think there's anything here now. She said, I don't see it. I could see it maybe with Jordy Chandler, but she says, I can't, I don't see it here. And I remember her telling me that. I never wrote about it, but I remember thinking about that at the time in the midst of the trial and thinking, is she saying that because she's African-American? Is she saying that because she's a Michael Jackson fan? Like, because there really was this anger between the media and the fans that was so palpable. I, I wish you guys could have been there to understand that we had gates and fences between the media and the fans, and they would climb up on those fences, those cyclone fences. And some of them would try to throw rocks and they, then they had police there. There was a police car sitting in the, in the parking lot where all the media was separated out from the fans. And inside that car was an, was an, like an army full of, 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 of gas bombs and, and, and weapons and, I mean, one day I was told that there was an artillery in there, and I thought, oh, my God. It never occurred to me that it could get that serious. But of all the media, oddly enough, who was hated by the uh, fans, it was myself and Diane Diamond. And I thought, you know, I, I've never been an outspoken person against Michael Jackson like she was her whole life. I just came to this thing, you know, blank for the trial. I mean, I had my opinion, but I wasn't a known Michael hater or anything like that. But yet, man, I was picked on as much as Diane Diamond. And I thought this is, and that, that kind of made me more think he was guilty because I was a, a, a victim of the fans and I, I hadn't even said much. And then I started to say more about what Fox wanted me to say, which was to only talk about things that were, wouldn't, wouldn't, would be culpable rather than, uh, you know, rather than exonerate Michael. So it, it, was, it was a tough situation. It was strange. When you say that Fox only wanted you to talk about things that would make Michael sound guilty, is that something that they explicitly told you? No. Or is it something that you no. just understood? It, it, they never, it, it's not like that. I'll, I'll tell you how it is. The, uh, at least on the O'Reilly show, every show is different, but he was the most popular show at the time. The way it was, was they would call me every morning and they would say, we'd like you to be on today. And I thought, no kidding. You know, hello, I'm covering Michael Jackson. And we understand the, the witnesses today are going to be, and they'd have a list, you know, and they'd say, today, Macaulay Culkin, for example. So Bill's going to want to talk to you about Macaulay Culkin and uh, what he has to say. And I'd say, all right. 
And I understood Macaulay Culkin is a big, you know, name, et cetera. But there was never any opportunity for me to say, but wait a minute, there's this other witness, you know, uh, Jamie Masada, who, uh, you know, believes that these people were grifters and he's the head of the comedy store and he's the one who's... There was no opportunity for me to do that. If I tried to do that, they weren't going to listen. They called me and specified who it was that they wanted me to talk to him about. And I couldn't get on the airwaves and just start talking about willy-nilly about anything else. I would have been thrown off the airwaves. So it wasn't like it was mandated. It was just they chose the topics, you know. I would like to know, like, when Michael finally, you know, started arriving for these official court dates, when you saw him for the first time in person, how did he look to you and how did he make you feel when when you saw him arrive there? Oh, I remember that very well because I had the very first position of all the media. So Fox News had the first position next to where the cars pulled up. And as I'm standing there and the... motorcade arrived everyone got out of their cars except for michael and he was in his car by himself so when his car rolled up the others had pulled away and he was still sitting in the car because you have to realize there's 2400 credentialed media all around him and behind that are i don't know a thousand fans i don't know how many fans screaming So you have thousands of people with cameras and screaming, and he's about to get out of this car and walk into a courthouse for a criminal trial. And I'll never forget seeing his face because I was standing right there and I could see it through the windshield. And he had the loneliest look I've ever seen on any human being in my life. He looked so alone and so I don't want to say afraid, but it was so surreal because here are all these people screaming. Here are all these cameras clicking before he even got out of the car, you know, and this person was just completely and totally alone. And there was that moment, I I just can't ever forget it, where I realized that, you know, it was it was Michael against the world. It didn't matter that he had this legal team or his family or whatever. He was a solo person in his life anyway. He was private. He was solo. Nobody understood him. And and he knew that. And now he was walking into this legal situation, insane situation, under a microscope. And I, 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 that's the only thought I had was... That, I couldn't believe how alone he was with with all that was going on. It was it was the strangest sensation um, I think I've ever had in being in being around a celebrity. I, I can't think of one stranger. Now, the first witness in the trial was Martin Bashir, um, who obviously his documentary "Living with Michael Jackson" was the uh, the program which the accuser Gavin Arvizo was featured in. I'm just going to read out a passage from the book that you wrote about Martin Bashir. Uh, He wrote, Michael Jackson had become an illusion set by a media machine. It was a machine that made millions by perpetuating the notion that Jackson was a freak. It was a dangerous machine that ultimately tried to bring the icon down. And after all, it was a media effort. The Bashir documentary, 
that landed Jackson in the Santa Maria court in the first place. I know you had something a a short while ago that you wanted to say about Martin Bashir, which would be the opportunity now to do that. But uh, additionally, could you talk about the extent to which, you know, whilst Bashir is, is culpable for his actions, to what extent is Michael personally responsible as well for the situation that he wound up in? Hmm. Well, uh, that fits in with what I wanted to say, and that is that Michael Jackson was always obsessed with royalty and the idea of being considered royalty. So, you know, as we prepare for this royal wedding that's about upon us here, uh, where the whole world is tuned in, I have to say that Michael loved that idea, that the whole world was tuned in to him, and he needed that. And so, for example, this is why I believe he named his son Prince. This is why he married Elvis Presley's daughter, who was the king of rock and roll. I mean, this is why he had the title King of Pop. It wasn't by mistake. Michael wanted desperately to be royalty, musical royalty he was, but he would have liked it if he could have been royalty. Perhaps that would have been a wish of his. And to that end, of course, Martin Bashir had done the documentary on Princess Diana. And so that allowed so much leverage because Michael was totally entranced with the notion that here's somebody who had been close to Princess Diana and had told her true story. And he believed wholeheartedly that Bashir would do that for him. And I saw all of the outtakes of the Bashir documentary. And I mean, we all did in court. And I'm talking about everything, two and a half hours worth. That was the beginning of the trial. We all watched that documentary before Bashir testified. And I have he didn't testify. He, he took the, he pled the fifth, whatever. But he, he didn't plead, plead the fifth, rather. He, he just said he, upon advice of counsel, he's not going to answer the question. The, the thing is, that documentary in its entirety, where we see everything, including the outtakes, showed how devious Bashir was in making Michael Jackson believe that this whole thing was about his desire to have an international children's holiday. And truly, this is what Bashir kept alluding to throughout. And you don't see it in the actual documentary. You don't see it in the outtake, the footage you were never meant to see, which aired on Fox at one time. But that's what Bashir continued to come back to, was that this is all about how Michael loved his children. Michael loved children. Michael wanted to help children. Michael, And so he truly was suckered by Martin Bashir's having this access to Princess Diana and the idea that that he was another royal subject, if you will, of Bashir. And this is why he gave him unfettered access for years to everything, didn't ask for any payment and never had any contract signed. The only thing that Michael did to protect himself, thank God, was have his own videographer there to have his own copy of this. And that's how we have the outtakes or we would never have seen them at all. But unfortunately, it just it wasn't enough. If you want to and, know if I think Michael was culpable in that, I don't yeah. think there was any culpability. I think Michael was always a naive soul. He was a brilliant 
genius when it came to, to business, music, dance, talent. But when it came to life and relationships and understanding people, he didn't. He grew up on a stage. He knew about a stage. He didn't know about anything else when it came to relationships other than when he had his own children. So that's how I see him. And I believe truly that he was just as naive as anything to fall into the clutches of Martin Bashir. And I, I suppose you'd say the same about falling into the clutches of the Arvizos as well. Oh, oh, absolutely. There's no question. No question. But of course, you do know that the Arvizos had already landed many celebrities before they got to Michael Jackson. So they had already, as grifters, had uh, first started with local Los Angeles comedians. I mentioned Jamie Masada. He was the head of a, a comedy nightclub in, in L.A. And so through Masada, which is how they even got to celebrities, was the kid, Gavin, and his brother were in a camp to go to comedy school. It was a program for underprivileged children. So they were there, and that's where they had interfacing with any kind of celebrities. And then Gavin got the cancer. Some local L.A. comics who helped him and did uh, blood drives and whatnot. Uh, one, I remember, bought a turkey for the family. There were all kinds of things that went on. And then from there, they escalated to the likes of George Lopez, who at that time was still on the rise. He wasn't as big a star as he is now. But Lopez, of course, tells the story at trial that he not only took the Arvizos into his life, but that they hounded him to continue to do blood drives and they were harassing him. And that at one point, the father and the two boys came over to his house. He was going to take them shopping for clothes. And they, but he had them in the house for a little while in the backyard on the swing set or something. And later he got a phone call from them saying, not he did, one of his servants, one of his servers did or his housekeeper or whatever, saying that they left their wallet there. Well, the wallet allegedly had $300 in it. I'm not sure the exact amount, but it was hundreds of dollars. And the help, the, the, the server, server of uh, Lopez replaced the money. It was no money in the wallet. And, and Lopez was furious about it because there was no money in the wallet. And he didn't like the idea that whoever it was that worked for him, his housekeeper, let's say, manager, whoever it was, had actually gone ahead and given them this money as if Lopez had stolen money from this poor kid who had cancer. I mean, this stuff was testified to. Jay Leno, they got to Jay Leno. Jay Leno on a Make-A-Wish Foundation offers kids, you know, uh, the opportunity to go and see all his cars that he has, the collection. And uh, Leno testified that he got a call from, from Gavin Arvizo and there was a woman in the background who seemed like she was coaching him and that Gavin was quote, overly effusive on the phone. Didn't sound like any of the kids he's talked to for years who need help. And he didn't feel right about it and didn't allow them to come see the, uh, Leno garage and didn't, and told his people, don't ever let them, don't, don't ever put them through to me again. And Leno was the type really who he works with kids. I know him a little bit. He does a lot of charity work, but he testified to that. And then, then they moved on to Chris Tucker you all know this, right? Yeah, I, I remember um, Chris Tucker even warned Michael when I think they got to Miami, I think it was. He warned Michael about, you know, just 
be aware something's not right here. Exactly. I wrote that in the book. And, and the reason he said that is because he was doing rush hour two or rush hour three, and he had invited this family to the set. And it was somewhere in, I think, I don't know, Arizona, I forget now, or Vegas, I think it was. Anyway, they went to the, the area where, where the film was being made, and they actually stayed, not the couple of days that he had invited them for, but they overstayed their welcome. But beyond that, they had the audacity, this is the Arvizo family now, of asking to be moved to the better hotel where Chris Tucker was staying rather than being with the rest of the um, crew and cast. Okay, so this is the stuff that we heard about in court. It went on and on and on from all of these these stars who were, uh, you know, basically harassed and, and ransacked by these or these grifters. And yes, Tucker advised Michael Jackson to stay away from them. But at the time, you see, what had happened already is that Mr. Bashir had suggested to Michael that they pick somebody that he helped to be in the documentary. And Michael had a few candidates in mind. And it turned out that they decided on the Gavin Arvizo. And when their Arvizo family came up there to do the documentary, it was Mr. Bashir who suggested that they hold hands on that bed. It was Mr. Bashir who asked the question about sleeping in the bed. And it was Mr. Bashir who knew all too well what that would look like because he was making a name for himself. But Michael and, and the Arvizos both said that that was not the intention and that, that was they, they didn't plan on holding hands. And, and the Arvizos made a taped recording, which we heard in court over and over again, saying, Janet Arvizo, the mother, says, let's hold hands now the way Martin Bashir told you to hold hands with Michael. So it's not a question that that ha didn't happen that way. There's a video uh, of the, the accuser's family saying it. The mother says it. Also, uh, who else told me this? Was the lawyer, uh, one of the, Bruce, uh, what is his name? Oxman, Brian Oxman, another one who told me that this was completely Bashir's idea and made up scenario. And it was because that kid had cancer and had no hair on his head and was, uh, I mean, sleeping in the bed with Michael. She, yeah, he came back two years later to make the documentary and they had it all on film. There was no time the Arvizo spent alone with Michael at that time. And when he had been there prior, as you can see in my book, there are pictures of Michael Jackson wheeling this kid around in a wheelchair and had no hair on his head. So, I mean, it's just, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm sure I'm rambling. So you no, 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 it's great. And I, I want to know, like, as all this testimony was happening in the courtroom and these ridiculous claims were coming out, and I'd imagine by the end of the, the trial, the, when, the, um, when Gavin himself had to, and Starr had to testify, when these horrible claims were coming out, how was Michael looking in the courtroom? How was he physically reacting to hearing these disgusting lies? Well, I can tell you that the day that Gavin Arvizo was going to testify is pajama day. Did you all know that? I didn't know it was exactly the same day. No, It was exactly the same day. I'm just going to jump in. I had a question actually directly related to that. What was your understanding at the time 
that had happened on that day when Michael came directly from the hospital after injuring his back. Oh, I knew exactly what happened. I was in, I was at that point, I was totally in the know, you know, this is way into the trial. And exactly what happened was, first of all, that was the day that Gavin Arvisa was going to testify. So it wasn't a surprise to me. Now, remember me thinking that he's guilty, that, oh my God, he can't stand the idea of watching this kid that's going to testify. I didn't know that the kid's testimony was going to be so shoddy and, and he didn't know what he was talking about. We were anticipating that the kid was going to be for real. But it came to me as no surprise that, gee, he would be sick on that day because this whole situation was making him sick. Now, in retrospect, I look back and realize that, yeah, it was going to make it made him sick to think that he, this kid who he helped, who had cancer, who was dying, was now going to testify that he was molested. That made him sick. So that day, Michael Jackson's what do you call entourage, the motorcade, hadn't arrived, hadn't arrived, hadn't arrived, and everybody was kind of freaking out, freaking out. You could see Mesro had come outside a few times and was looking around. And now everybody was getting word in the media that, you know, well, we should see, we're standing there. We're, we're at the we're front on the front lines. Where the hell is Michael? And there was only one way in and out of the court. It wasn't like he could have slipped through the back because it was so high security that there were there were all these gates and fences and and law enforcement and whatnot. So now we all went into the court and Mesro made a, a motion to the judge that his client was in the hospital and was sick. And could there be a reprieve in the court proceedings, you know, a, you know, a delay being considered. And that's when Rodney Melville, the judge, was taking his opportunity. He was biased against Michael Jackson. And that was clear on that day more than any other that Melville said, no. There will be no lateness, no tardiness in starting the trial today. And if he's not here on time, I will lock him up. And it was at that point that the that Michael and his 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 people got a, a phone call saying you need to get here at ninety miles an hour. Grab him out of the hospital right now, because if he's not walking through the courtroom at 830, usually you get there at eight, you know, because just because of all the fanfare and hoopla and having to get through the crowds and whatnot. He got that call at 8 a.m. and the hospital wasn't that far away. And that's why he was in the pajamas is because he had literally they grabbed him out of the emergency room and shoved him in the in the, the car and threw a jacket on him. And made him walk into court because he was going to go, the, the judge was going to put him in handcuffs and put him in jail. And cont- contempt of court. That's what happened. I think the story like of Pajama Day grew so massive in the media because Michael uh, was well known for being photographed by paparazzi all the time in like pajamas and wheelchairs and scarves and disguises and all kinds of crazy things he'd go out in public in. And I think like why it grew such legs and why it was so fascinating to the media was because, well, like Michael's kind of bizarre behavior in public even permeates into this extremely professional environment where he's required to be as as uh, formal as possible. <laughs> well, of course, that was it. That was it. I mean, people, that was a field day for the media. Yeah. That yeah. was their greatest field day. But truly, it was very sad when I look back on it. 
And when you look at the reality yeah. of what happened and, and Jermaine Jackson um, in his book gives an incredible recount of that day and what were the conversations he was having with his brother in the hospital and uh, amazing, amazing to read that. Just to follow up on my question, I really, I would love to know, um, so when those things were happening in the courtroom and that, that testimony was being given and, and Michael was having to sit there and listen to these lies, what was, how was he reacting physically there? Was he, did there were the moments where you saw disgust on his face or anything? Well, you know, Michael was stoic, I, I would say for the most part in the trial. And you have to remember too, he wore glasses because he needed to see and read documentation there. So he looked very different. You're not used to seeing Michael Jackson wearing glasses. You know what I mean? So it was like he was studious almost. He really was stoic. He didn't, he didn't allow the public to see his uh, disgust. If anything, like for example, when Debbie Rowe testified, she tried to talk to him from the stand. And what you got was the sense that he was like going to be like a statue. He was not going to engage or really react to anything of what these people were saying in public anyway. It was clearly making him sick, physically sick. And he never recovered from that being that sick from all that he went through. And he was losing weight. I know I know the calls he was making to Tom Mesro in the middle of the night and what was going on personally for him. But he did not allow the public to see it. Not that I could see. In the book, Aphrodite, you speak about Michael's family and there's a touching portion where you recount the first day of court. And I'll just read a a little bit here. Catherine and brother Jackie were the only family members with him. And that morning, just as Michael approached the defence table, Catherine reached over and pulled a loose thread off her son's jacket Ever the penultimate mum, Catherine was the essence of grace under pressure. Now, what did you observe about Michael's relationship with his family at this time? What what seemed to to me was, first of all, you know, obviously Joe arrived at various points throughout the trial as well and sat with Catherine. He was there quite a bit. And his other siblings, some of them were there quite a bit. But there was no real unity amongst the, the family there seemed to be, it just was Michael. And then his, other than his mother, I didn't feel the connection between him and any of his siblings. It didn't, it didn't come through at all, at all. Now I know that that's not really true. I know his siblings, some of his brothers are very involved in helping him, making decisions with him and and, and doing things for him. But that is not the way it appeared in open court. There just, there just wasn't, I, I, I can't explain it. I just, I felt like it was Michael Jackson and then this family almost other than his mother really almost had nothing to do with him. It was weird, frankly, to me, the way it was like, it wasn't like, I, I can't, you know, part of it is when you're in a courtroom, you're not allowed to sit in kibitz and this, you know, it's serious. Your life's on the line, but so it may have just been that, you know, it may have just been because of the setting. I don't know, you kind of wanted to see him, you know, brush the shoulder of one of his brothers or have a brother hold him, you know, hold his hand for a minute when he walked by or something, touch him, but it didn't happen. It never happened. 
Yeah, there was a lot of that sort of affection going on on the way in and out of the courtroom. I mean, there's some very famous photos of Joe Jackson holding his son's hand and and all of those kind of things. But maybe it was a very conscious effort within the courtroom to be unemotional. Not sure. I suppose. I suppose that's it because, you know, it is it is obviously life on the line for him anyway. If he had been put in prison, I think it would have been uh, almost like a death sentence because I don't think he could have survived it. Nonetheless, perhaps it was just the formality of the courtroom. And the other thing, too, you know, you, you know, I met Joe and I talked with him uh, in Las Vegas quite a bit for two days, actually. And the thing that I realized was that and he admitted it. He said that he couldn't get his son on the phone. This was after the trial when I had written the book that, you know, Michael wanted nothing to do with him or that's not what he said. But he just said he can't get my can't get my son on the phone. Joe putting his arm around Michael. It was a little bit too late. A lot too late. He did his damage to that young man so many years before. And I had the experience of actually being the recipient of his nastiness myself. And it wasn't anything in particular. He wasn't trying to be nasty to me. He was actually trying to get me to give him some of the part of the rights to my book. But the way he treats people is very harsh. And he has no problem insulting you. And he did insult me. And I, I felt very badly about it. I, I really, he hurt me. And this was only in a one day period. What did he say? Oh, he just made a remark about my weight. <laughs> and that's not really good for to someone to do to a woman. <laughs> now, it's just, uh, I don't know how you do that with somebody who you're trying to make a book deal with, first of all, which I wasn't trying to make a book deal. He was the one that was trying to glom on to my stuff, but... Regardless, it just struck me as, my God, this man, and the way he said it, it was just so hurtful. I actually went home and went on a diet and lost 20 pounds, so that was the good part. But I just thought, wow, like what a mean-hearted individual, really cruel. It's a complex dichotomy with the Jackson family because you hear these stories about Joe and his, you know, (laughs) always – reaching out to his son, perhaps um, wanting money and those kind of things. But then you also hear stories about Michael's close family um, relentlessly reaching out to him in his final years in interventions and trying to save him from his drug addictions. So, yeah, it's you, you, it's a complicated relationship, like all families are, I guess. I suppose. Even more complicated, though, because he really struck out on his own. And once he had his children, he, he had no use for his family other than his mother. I mean, that, that seems very clear to me. I, I'm not saying that he didn't love his brothers and that they weren't a part of, you know, helping him and this and that, but his parents, Joe, I mean, rather, no use for Joe. And I, I'm not so sure he was thrilled with, uh, you know, other siblings. I don't want to get into names, but it, 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 it came through in, in, the, in what I saw and in what I've heard and what I could glean. Now, t- turning back to the subject of your book, Aphrodite, the uh, the media and the way it was covering the trial. As you know, I've been doing my own research into the case for a number of years, and I've recently been speaking to some people who were there and who were telling me about some of the uh, collusion that was going on between witnesses and the press. Uh, for instance, the witnesses were bound by a gag order, so they couldn't talk about the case, but They were selling interviews and then invoicing for different things. Uh, Some of the witnesses were being taken out shopping by the TV networks and and that kind of stuff. So what's your recollection 
of the way that the media was interacting with witnesses and people involved with the prosecution at that time? Well, first of all, anything like that that was going on and does go on in big trials, that's all very hush-hush. And that's very much inside baseball. And if you're not the one doing it, you're not going to know about it. That's number one. Because you know it's a competitive thing. So I've seen it happen at other big trials where uh, one network will literally have a war room trying to get to the certain witnesses. And I've actually spied on them because I'm not with any network and I've watched it. So I know it goes on. And I also know about trips to Disney and trips to this and, you know, paying fees for photographs or licensing fees to use the property and film something on their property. All kinds of craziness that goes on with uh, the media, quote unquote, not paying for interviews, but really finding a way to alternatively pay for things. It's, it's something that's unspoken within the, the media in terms of uh, how do I put this? Like the news media, CNN and Fox, for example, and MSNBC, uh, they really can't do it. They don't do it because they don't have to because it's news. They really have a public domain at their hands. But they really, they're, they're held to a different standard. But now when it comes to like ABC, NBC, and CBS, they can go under the entertainment banner and have different rules, you see. So I don't know. I don't know what they were doing. I know they do it but they use different rules to do it and they're very, very secretive about it. So I'm surprised you're hearing about it. I can tell you, I never heard a thing about it because the only thing I ever knew and that was so clear was that Diane Diamond, when she did the piece for Inside Edition or whatever it was, hard copy rather, um, had access to the Neverland Ranch and was on the ranch when, when they went in to do the raid and she was given that access by Tom Sneddon. So that to me meant that everybody and anything was up for grabs when it came to media relationships and dealings with the prosecution, including all the witnesses. So I, I got it, but I never saw it. It was also suggested at some point that there was a bidding war going on for the first images of Michael in his cell if he was convicted and taken to prison. Do you remember anything about that? I, I do know about that. And I know that it was Diane Diamond who thought she was going to get that first picture because she had somehow been promised this by Tom Sneddon, because remember, she was secretly writing the book that was going to put the final nail in Michael Jackson's coffin. We didn't know she was writing a book. She just was never around in the evenings when people would might go out to dinner or this and that. And I knew Diane Diamond at the time, you know, pretty well from having done a lot of work with her on Core TV, and she was never around. So I, I had no idea she was writing a book until, ironically, and you'll find this interesting, it's a separate issue, but I must tell you, she actually had the audacity to call me. She was in New York and I was in L.A. And uh, this is after the trial. And she said, I heard that you have gotten some pictures and evidence photos and things from the court. And I said, yes, I have. And for you, and you're writing a book. And I said, yes, I am. And she said, oh, well, I would appreciate it if you could share those with me. <laughs> the nerve of that woman. <laughs> I mean, well, yeah. So my answer to her was, uh, no, but you, I'm sure if you go to the court in Santa Maria, you can get them. And the funny thing was, the woman didn't bother to do it. And now they're disappeared. The court destroyed them. When I went back to do my piece for true crime for ID, the, uh, 
The court clerk said to me, do you have those pictures? I said, you don't have them anymore? They said, no, everything was thrown away because he was acquitted. I couldn't believe it. So all the photos I have, I'm actually going to reprint the book as an anniversary edition now it, with those pictures in color because no one's actually seen them in color. And it's a whole different thing to see them in color because I realized that no one's ever going to see pictures of Neverland again or the inside of his house again because it's all gone. Will there be any changes to the, the text of the book as well? Are you going to revise any portions of that for the anniversary edition? I, I am. I'm writing. I wrote a new epilogue for it. Um, getting into the little bit of the uh, oh, the aftermath, you know, after Michael died and how, uh, and what went on there. Yes, I did a little bit, but I'm not changing the actual uh, text because I feel like it was done exactly the way I wanted it to be done. But I did add something to it, and uh, and I will change those pictures. I don't think I'll change anything else. I, I don't think so. Just on the subject of collusion between prosecutors and the media. You were talking about Diane being given access to the ranch for the raid. There was a level of collusion that's not really addressed very often, which it was the way in which the prosecution was sourcing a lot of its witnesses from the media. You're sitting in, in court and you're watching all these, for instance, the 1108 witnesses coming in. And these are all people that have been paid by tabloids for interviews and then the prosecutors have gone to them so was that something that happens in a lot of these big cases or was that something that to you was quite unique the way that the, the media was feeding the prosecution in fairness what i have to say is at the time it was it seemed to me to be unusual but also at the time you have to remember that Michael Jackson's life was a media expose on one level. So it wasn't shocking or surprising to know that they would find witnesses through whoever did interviews in the National Enquirer and whatnot. But I will say this, rolling forward 13 years later, I've been at trials like I was at the Cosby trial just a few weeks ago. And boy, was everybody and anybody who was talking, being talked about was being pulled right out from media pages and things were being brought up that had been said in the media, that books had been written, or this and that. I mean, it's commonplace nowadays to pull that out. That's for sure. But I don't know that it was then. Let's um, talk a little bit about the late district attorney, Tom Snedden, and his conduct in the courtroom. It's been described by quite a few people that it was somewhat clownish. But what were your impressions about the way um, in which the prosecution and the defense lawyers conducted themselves during the trial? The, the pinnacle of watching the prosecution for me was the day that I happened upon them in a restaurant that was far away from Santa Maria. And I was there because I had guests from out of town and I had taken them to this side restaurant about, I don't know, 40 minutes away from Santa Maria. And in the restaurant was a special party for the prosecution team. They were sitting at the bar, Ron Zone and Tom Stedden and all the rest of them. And when I walked in, obviously they knew who I was. And I went over and I smiled and I said, oh, what are you, you know, they, I couldn't believe it. They were there. I could, they, you know, they saw me there. And I said, 
oh, what are y'all doing? You know, and they said, we're, we're just having a dinner together. And I said, well, it looks like you've, you're, you're celebrating. And they, they kind of smiled and nodded and went off into a private room. And that's when I realized that they were having a celebration dinner before the verdict. So talking about being clowns, there's Auchincloss and everybody else all having drinks and toasting each other. I physically saw it myself before the verdict. Wow. Oh, yes. I saw it. And so I just... You know, and at the time, remember, I thought it was going to be a guilty verdict. So I thought, well, wow, that's, you know, look at these guys. They're really, they're really sure of themselves. But then, of course, everything went on. It all just ra- unraveled on the day of, of, you know, the verdict. And um, I can't imagine, you know, what they must have felt or thought knowing that they were, had, were so self-satisfied and, and having seen their faces. I spoke with them in that restaurant at the bar before they went off into the private room. They were extraordinarily self-satisfied with the way the case had gone. That much was crystal clear. They were celebrating that night because they were expecting this great verdict. They were gonna put Michael Jackson behind bars. And when that didn't happen, you could hear a pin drop in that courtroom. It was just like The emperor had no clothes. Everything had been removed. It was, it was like we were all in a fog and all of a sudden this dark cloud, this fog just lifted and you were in the light. It was amazing. It was unbelievable. Really. I I, I don't know how else to describe it. It was, it was crazy. And, uh, at the same time, it was, it, there was an elation about it. You know, it was like people had their mouths were dropped open. Some of the people in the prosecution, you could see a mouth was dropped open. The jaws dropped. And that's, with all the formalities of a courtroom, gentlemen, that they could not hide. And uh, what, how would you describe your own reaction initially to the verdicts and then... How soon would you say it was before you reevaluated your position? You know, initially, honestly, I was glad because at that point I had had that dealings with the fans for so many months and I had gone already to the Gates of Neverland to say, look, I'm not I don't hate Michael Jackson. I love Michael Jackson. I'm a fan of Michael Jackson. And they didn't believe me. One of them called me a whore in Spanish, you know, and so I had already decided that. You know, no matter what was going on in the tr- in the court, that these people were grifters. I didn't like them, and that I didn't know that Michael had done anything to this kid. I didn't question his testimony, but it was kind of all underneath, like you know, when you, you when you don't want to see the truth yet. You know, I was all, I had buried all of that. I was I was not looking at it really on a face of it. I was just had I had ingested all of it, but I went, hadn't processed it. So when the jury came back not guilty all those times and you heard it 14 times in the courtroom, like I say, it was like a fog lifted for everyone. And it was this, the light, it was like literally like an ascension for Michael Jackson. It was unbelievable. And then I was happy because I didn't want to see him go to prison. I really didn't. I never wanted to see him go to prison. 
So I was happy, and you know, I came outside, and those doves were released, and I, I mean, I was, I was, I was stunned, but I was happy. And O'Reilly pressed me on it. Well, what do you really think? What do you really think? And I, I remember thinking, I don't know what to say. I, I was just still in shock and stunned. And it wasn't until I went back to Los Angeles and I did some soul searching about it. And I realized, you know, I just didn't really pay the right attention to what details. They, they kind of steered me into what I was supposed to talk about. And I want to go back there and I want to look at everything myself again. And so I did, and I had to get a court order from Judge Melville to do that, and he gave it to me because technically they're supposed to do that for you. They don't have to, but that's, you know, legally you have a right to ask for it, and he gave me the, the order, and it was at that point that once I looked at that kid testifying, that was the thing that stuck in my mind, well, not the kid testifying, the kid Gavin Arvizo with the police, the Santa Barbara sheriffs. I looked at that video over and over again, and I thought, this kid is lying He's lying. He is not a victim of abuse because he was being spoon-fed answers. He had no answers. And then I was like, oh, my God, this whole thing was a sham. I can't let this go. I can't leave this. The other thing, too, guys, is that at the same time when Michael was found not guilty and, um, you know, I drove up to the gates of Neverland and all the fans were up there waiting for him to come in. And, and uh, then all the media was there. And I drove right up to the very front because I'm ballsy and because I didn't care. And I, I passed all the media vans and all the everybody. And I drove right up to the very front to the gates. And I, he had, Mike Jackson had already come through by then. And, um, and I stood there at those gates of Neverland and, and all that hoopla was going on. You know, the fans were happy and things and the media was doing their reports. And the next thing I knew, very shortly thereafter, everybody disappeared. And I was still in Santa Maria because I had an apartment there. So and I didn't have the I wasn't afforded the same luxuries of the other media who had hotel rooms and whatnot. I was an independent contractor. So I had to stay there and and, and get the apartment cleaned up and sell the furniture and all this. And and I just remember thinking like within a day the whole thing was just gone. Like nobody cared anymore about him that he was exonerated. I'll never forget that feeling. It was probably what spurred me to decide to go back and look at the evidence really is that I was like, well, wait a minute. So he was found not guilty. Like no one's going to report about it, about what went, what really went on at the trial or how, why I just, I couldn't fathom it. I suppose it was like, wait a minute, this is Michael Jackson. Like, aren't you going to say anything about, like, aren't you going to follow up? What, what kind of media is this? I, I, I couldn't, I, I really couldn't wrap my head around it. And, and meanwhile, you know, the media is, the media is gone. And as you say, it doesn't care anymore. But ultimately, what toll do you think it took on Michael Jackson? The media has moved on. Uh, do you believe it was the trial ultimately which killed him or, or, or what are your thoughts on the impact on him? I think that the trial did something very, very horrible to Michael. And that was make him a man without a home because, you know, Michael Jackson's Neverland was his sanctuary from the world. And now he couldn't go back there. Mesereau counseled him to leave Santa Barbara County and leave Neverland and not come back. 
because he said Snedden would never stop. Jackson now wound up in Bahrain and then in Ireland, and he was a man without a country, without a home. And think about somebody with the uh, profound fame of Michael Jackson, probably the most famous human being on the planet. You can't move a step without having everybody all over you. This is why he wore costumes. This is why he wore masks. This is why it wasn't just, quote, strange behavior. He couldn't be out in public. I know this because he talked about it in the outtakes of the Bashir documentary. He couldn't be out in public without being bombarded. And so how do you live when you can't, you, you, ha you don't have anywhere to go that's your own? How do you survive? And he, and he didn't have anywhere to go. So he was a man without a home, a man without a country, and that was killing him. And then he decided to come back to the United States and he thought he would make this comeback tour and he would, he would prove himself once again and that would be it. And that's why he called it, this is it. And of course he died trying because by that time, the effects of the drugs and the fact that he could never deal with being betrayed by everyone and anyone he ever knew in that courtroom and all the rest of it just crashed in on him. That's what I believe. And a uh, final question that we always ask our guests at the end of each show. How do you personally believe that Michael should be remembered? Oh, my goodness. Michael Jackson should be remembered as the greatest single entertainer of all time. And I might add that he should also be remembered for the song, Earth Song, in which he says, we are running out of time and begs us to think about us and begs us to do the right thing because the planet is crying tears and we need to save it. That's who Michael Jackson was. That's who Michael Jackson is. And his message and his music will live on forever and hopefully will help save this planet. What a way to summarize, Michael. Thank you. <laughs> well, that's and how if, I feel. If our listeners want to check out what you're working on nowadays, where can they find you online? So it's AphroditeJones.com. That's my website. I am literally, as I speak with you, looking at the color photographs of MJC for the new edition, um, the revised edition, and I'm thinking I might bring it out in time for the June 13th vindication. Um, so, you know, I think that's, that's where I'm at, and hopefully um, your listeners will like to see that, because when they see this in, in, in color... Uh, the realization is all those years ago, I thought everybody would have access to Neverland and people would, they would become like a museum or something. And we'd all, and it turns out none of that happened. And, and so these pictures that I have that no one else has, I, I just, I want to, I need to share them with the world in color. So I'm about to do that. Um, I'm working on two new television projects, but there's nothing to see there yet. So guys, I just appreciate you having me on and I appreciate what you're doing because you know what, Michael Jackson, deserves to be vindicated by the public at large. And this nonsense of calling him horrible things that aren't true needs to end. This has been terrific. Thank you so much. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you, guys. Thank you all. I really appreciate meeting you. I'm sorry I talk so much. 
No, it's great. It's wonderful. Thank you. It's better than short answers. (laughs) (laughs) You mean like yes? No? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That would be the worst. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So there we have it. That was the uh, author of Michael Jackson, Conspiracy, Aphrodite Jones. Jamin, Q, how did you think that interview went? Yeah, I thought it was quite good. It was really, it was great to talk to Aphrodite. Um, She, uh, boy, something that was really struck home to me, I guess, was just how how negative the press were at the time that this trial was going on and how everybody had already made up their own minds that Michael was guilty. And in some ways I can kind of see why that the reality was like that outside the courtroom because of all the prior allegations, but just, just hearing that people were unwilling to wait to hear the evidence. And even when they had heard the evidence sidelining it and still putting out this myth and lie that Michael Jackson was a pedophile, yeah, really sad. It did it did break my heart to hear that. But it was wonderful to hear from her. <clears throat> and I think it's um, a real testament and credit to her that she was able to come out and release her book admitting she was wrong. Not many people have done that. That's right. Not many at all. Like on my shelves of Michael Jackson books, there's, there's only two. There's the Geraldine Hughes book, Redemption, which was related to the uh, Geordie Chandler scenario, uh, she was the secretary in uh, Rothman's office at the time. And then uh, this uh, con- Michael Jackson Conspiracy by Aphrodite Jones. That's the only two books in my whole collection. Um, and I think that says a lot about how many people in the media have actually realized the mistake, their error of their ways, but also that the, uh, the struggle of them to actually get these books published yeah, I mean, you saw it after the trial. We There was an influx of negative books. You had the Bob Jones book came out. You had Diane Diamond's book came out. And the difficulty that Aphrodite had is quite staggering when she wanted to go against the grain and publish something positive. As we were hearing in the show, she was a, a seven-time New York Times bestselling author. Every Every book she wrote top the charts seven for seven and yet she goes to the traditional publishers and says she wants to write this book about the michael jackson trial and and how it was misreported and everybody tells her that they're not prepared to publish it and it's the same thing that tom mesero encountered uh when he was approached by an agent after the michael jackson trial who said uh i would like to work with you and i think we could we could write a book and, and tell your story And the agent was shocked because they took the proposal to, I think, the top nine or the top ten publishers in New York. And all of them said, we don't want anything pro-Jackson. 
and and in a way it was like an act of self-sabotage it was almost like a kamikaze mission for aphrodite to publish this book because as a seven-time bestseller she ends up self-publishing a book that the, the rest of the publishing industry won't touch and she's never written another book since so it did take a huge amount of, of uh, courage to do what she did. And although the uh, the book became a cult hit and it's become popular amongst Michael's fans, uh, it's, it's notable that this was a lady who had a, a years-long, you know, 15-year career as a best-selling author. And she writes this Michael Jackson book and never gets published again. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, obviously, in this interview, there are some of the things we wanted to talk with her about. Um, but the last third of our interview, we, we weren't able to to actually even get to a lot of our questions we couldn't, couldn't ask because she had to go, which is unfortunate. But one of the questions we were going to ask, we had a couple of difficult ones in there. And one of them was going to be around how in, in more recent years, I think in a particular interview, she's come out and said, um, she did have some questions, not so much about Michael's relationship with Gavin Arviso, but but more so Geordie Chandler. <clears throat> I wish we'd got the chance to ask that question, but but she had to leave, unfortunately. I think um, if fans maybe haven't read the book, I, I can, from my personal experience, I would recommend it. I think, you know, it's not an easy book to read. Uh, it does take you right back to that very difficult time uh, for Michael, and there's some fans out there listening that may have actually been there at the courtroom in Santa Maria. If you uh, maybe haven't read it and you are curious if you should, I would recommend it for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a little bit misleading in a way. Like the title of the book is Michael Jackson Conspiracy, and it's meant to be about how the media conspired against Michael. And that's certainly mentioned and alluded to in the first third of the book, but on balance across the whole book, it's mainly um, a recount of everything that was going on in the courtroom with all the testimony condensed down into a narrative, which is a very, very useful book for Michael Jackson fans to have because we do have basically the trial in a book in a way. But if you're going into it wanting to learn about media conspiracy, there's not too many bombshells in there. That's true. There's, there are no names named, really. She does not go into a lot of detail about who was colluding with who and and who told lies about what and so on. It's, it's kind of broadly framed as exposing the media conspiracy, but she tries to do that by just telling you all the testimony that you never heard through the media rather than going into detail about the specific ways in which certain media organizations were misbehaving. So it's a, it is a, a good book, and I, I've read it a couple of times over the years, and I'd recommend it to anyone that wants to find out about the trial. But uh, as you say, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say it's, um, it's a, a, a particularly detailed expose of the media's activity. Well, there we have it. Another Vindication Day episode locked in done a few now we have four so i think you know it's not a day that we are celebrating this event or the horrendous trial that michael endured but it's a day of remembrance about michael's vindication in that court of law he had his day in court and the jurors decided on the evidence presented and he was found not guilty on every single count and every single charge 
And I think that is what we do these shows for. I got to ask you guys, I've, I've been wanting to ask you both of you this for a long time. What was, when you were listening to those verdicts coming over, whatever radio or television you were watching at the time, what feeling did you have when you heard each of those counts? Utter relief because I was not sure. Like we in the you know forums, we were seeing what was not being reported and how absurd this was. But that was no guarantee. We had no inkling at all that it could possibly be a not guilty verdict because we weren't, we were hoping for that. We were hoping for the truth. But I think we were so under such a huge weight, waiting for a guilty verdict. It was utter relief. Yeah, it was the same for me. I was 17. The BBC announced that there was a verdict in the case. Uh, I think they interrupted their regular programming to show the verdicts live on TV. My mom came crashing into the room saying, quick, there's a verdict. Uh, we, we put it on the TV. I held hands with her and um, we listened to the verdicts come in one after the other. And it's just complete relief. Once the last verdict had been read out, sort of a huge, huge weight being lifted and huge relief, but then a, a kind of a, a very strange feeling of what now? Yeah. Yeah. It was strange in that way. Um, I remember feeling the same way. I was relieved and I was actually really excited. I was like, I was you know, punching the air, I'm pretty sure, like, just, yes, yes, you know, like, I, I really did feel like Michael, his name had been cleared in a way, and I was so excited to speak to my friends and other people I knew that day about it, because I could proudly rep Michael's innocence, and it was a feeling like that, like, I remember there was a, a website went up like a splash page or something on MJJ source. And it had a photo of Michael smiling out in at Neverland and the words vindication were going across the screen. And I remember feeling like where to now, this has been such a huge chapter in Michael's life and really is a, a central and important chapter in his life today. When you look at it and, and after that thinking what's going to happen, you know, what's going to happen. And then I guess the years of exodus <laughs> in his life began. When I listen to the audio of those verdicts, it, it takes me right back to that moment as a child. Or oh, not a child, really, but just a, a person in my... I think I was 20 years old at the time. But let's, um, let's go back now and play that audio, shall we? Here we go. Here we go, Jane. This is the audio feed from the court. Superior Court of the State of California for the County of Santa Barbara, Santa Maria Division, the people of the State of California Plaintiff versus Michael Joe Jackson Defendant, case number 1133603, count one, verdict. We, the jury in the above entitled case, find the defendant not guilty of conspiracy as charged in count one of the indictment. Dated June 13th, 2005, four person number 80. Count two, verdict. 
We, the jury in the above-entitled case, find the defendant not guilty of a lewd act upon a minor child as charged in count two of the indictment, dated June 13, 2005, for person number 80. Yeah, certainly does take you back to that moment, that incredible moment, which really Michael did pay a huge price for. And I think as much as we were all hoping at the time that it would, you know, once and for all clear his name and and leave that awful chapter behind him, we've seen, you know, in even recent years that we've been doing the MJ cast, people come out and attempt to make further allegations against Michael. And we've seen their cases be dismissed and their flimsy claims, you know, not stand up to even fan scrutiny, you know, photos that they tried to do. And it's not even just people that have made allegations, uh, but also the media have put out, you know, fake documents and they've all been exposed for what they were. So we've, you know, we're still battling and we're still needing to stand up for Michael's name and point out these ridiculous claims for what they are. And that's a very important part of being a Michael Jackson fan, even these days. And it's very tiresome as well and kind of infuriating because, as you say, you know, there's like these targeted quite sophisticated attempts to smear him like when they put out the supposed child pornography that had been found at, at Neverland which was released uh, by lawyers who were working for people who were trying to sue the Michael Jackson estate for alleged abuse but then uh, you, you know the, as you said they don't even stand up to fan scrutiny it was Michael it was left to Michael's fans to prove that these documents were bogus because the media didn't do its job properly. So you have the media just sending the story around the world saying, look at this child pornography that's been found at Michael's property in 2003. And it turns out the images are all from about 2012 or something after Michael had already been long dead. Um, and that's, that's ignoring the fact that if there was anything found, that's a federal crime. That would have been would one have been of the charged. charges. That's, yeah. that's in the first ten seconds. It's like uh, that's a federal crime. Where was that charge? Yeah. There was none. Yeah, just ab absurdity. Hugely infuriating. Really, cause, you know that it's still going on to this day. It just drives you nuts, and and it, and it is uh, it is an important part of being a Michael fan, but it really shouldn't be. It's really annoying that it's left to Michael because it's kind of like you can't just enjoy being a fan it's all, it almost becomes like a job sometimes when all this stuff is going on but it's interesting and I was going to ask Aphrodite about it if she'd stayed on the line but it's interesting to see the complete lack of new allegations against Michael in this Me Too era where anybody and everybody is coming forward with allegations against all sorts of people. And if there was ever a time when you would expect more allegations to suddenly be coming out, it would be now. Uh, we're seeing nothing. And I think that's quite telling. Yeah, I Hugely agree so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Gentlemen, this has been a pleasure. And uh, again, I'm proud that we get to present a Vindication episode 
just reminding people of Michael's innocence and perhaps learning a little bit more about this day and what what led up to it. Thank you, Charlie, for putting these shows together. I think we need to be really clear with our audience that you're the yes. one who does a lot of the well, really all of the heavy lifting around these shows. You write most of the questions for them. You host them. So from the bottom of our hearts, thank you so much for all you do. It is my pleasure. That's no problem at all. It's a privilege to work with you both. So many great questions that any that I had come up with on my own, when I saw your list, I was like, well, Charles has already got them in <laughs> and in far better words, grown up words than what I would have used. So you certainly, uh, you lift, you lift our standard, Charles, and we very much appreciate it. And uh, just a reminder, maybe on the previous Vindication episodes, we have had, we've had interviews with Tom Mesereau. Scott Ross, who was the lead defense investigator, and then the hugely popular simulcast with the Reason Bound podcast with uh, your friend, Charlie. Did you want to remind people about that episode? Yeah, so um, my friend Ryan Michaels hosts a podcast called Reason Bound, where uh, the whole theme of the podcast is challenging bad arguments and promoting um, logic and reason. And so with each episode of the show, he takes a political hot potato. I think he did one, for instance, about Colin Kaepernick and, and Black Lives Matter. And he debates somebody uh, quite often with the opposite viewpoint to him uh, to demonstrate logical fallacies and, and how if you want to win an argument, then you need to have a, a sound basis for what you're saying. And... Um, He'd had me on to discuss the burden of proof and the concept of innocent until proven guilty at some point in about springtime last year. And as we were discussing it, I mentioned the Michael Jackson case a couple of times, and we decided to do a follow-up show where we would just discuss the, the Michael Jackson trial. Uh, and it was an episode where Ryan and I were both on the same page, pretty much, actually, rather than being oppositional. And um, we took the allegations from beginning to end. So we started with the the Geordie Chandler case, and then we went all the way through to Wade Robson, debating all of the the evidence in the case and um and the arguments that people put forward for Michael's guilt and how they don't stand up to scrutiny. It was called Pirates in Neverland. Yeah, it's a wonderful listen. I've heard it three or four times, maybe more. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's outstanding, outstanding stuff. And it, was, um, it actually charted quite well for us. It took us right up in the um, music podcast charts on, on Apple Podcasts. Um, which is a real testament to how strong that episode was. Well done. Oh, that's good to know. I didn't know that. And thank you. Yeah, no, it was it was a privilege. It's always a privilege to to be on with you guys and to be to be undertaking anything which is kind of getting the message out about this case and about the verdicts and the evidence. And and I I, I like the idea of arming fans with the facts to go out and win these arguments themselves as well. 
because we were in, in addition to on Pirates of Neverland, in addition to dealing with the kind of fallacious arguments that are uh, put forward by Michael's critics to say, well, he must be guilty because he had loads of plastic surgery, that kind of stuff. We um, we were also talking about fan arguments and, and why they often lose the debate uh, when they're arguing for his innocence and, and the, the kind of stuff that they tend to bring up compared to what they should be bringing up if they want yeah. to convince people. Yeah. So, of course, you are listening to the MJCast podcast. Our website with show notes and links to all previous episodes can be found at themjcaster.com. We're across social media with Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just simply search for The MJCast and you will find us. Our email is themjcast at icloud.com for any feedback which we would be very happy to read and we appreciate very much. You can find us across multiple podcast apps, including Apple Podcasts and, of course, Android Podcasts for your Android devices. And that's how this show is designed and meant to be consumed by for your convenience. So search for us across podcast apps. Yeah, it's it's far better than just going to the mjcast.com and downloading the MP3 file to your PC from 1997. Right, save, click, yeah. convert, yeah. putting it on a, a USB stick or whatever people are doing. Oh Listening my God. to Windows Media Player. Who would do that? What sort of a person I, would do I that? I can't imagine. In five years when all your iPods don't work anymore and your iPhones, uh, you, you know, you've had three more iPhones since then. I'll be the only person with a copy of any of these shows and I'm going to charge you for access. <laughs> Charlie, would you like me to deliver transcribed versions for you on stone tablets as well? Just for your storage? Or? No, no, that'll be all right. I've, I've got them backed up on a couple of USBs. <laughs> so. Not audio tape? You should get them onto audio tape. Yeah, yeah, it's a good idea. Vinyl. And yeah. CD. Well, that's wrong CD. Yeah, that's true. We are done. Cool. That's it. Thank you, Charlie. We'll Thank you, Charlie. Indeed. Well, I'm going to sign off. Uh, we will be back, of course, with the next episode being Michael's anniversary episode. So thank you again for tuning into the MJ cast. I am Q and Michael on. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll be back in a fortnight's time. Keep Michaeling. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and I'll catch you next time. It's goodbye from Charlie.